Thank you. It's good to be here. It's good to meet uh, Brother Ken's congregation. And um, keep your Bibles open to Acts 2 if you still uh, have your finger there or a marker from which Ken just read. Uh, There'll be a little bit of introduction before we we get to the text, but it will focus on verses 42 through 47. I am with you in uh, much weakness, uh, as Paul said he was there with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2-3, and uh, there's different reasons for that. One is, yeah, the burning down of a a camper and uh, affecting the brother's car that pulled it and how what that makes your mind go through and thinking of that and uh the the mind going in all kinds of directions okay what did we just lose how many possessions did we have in there what needs to be replaced what's plan b for this trip uh i didn't have a plan b uh and uh, all of that coming together and so your mind is kind of out of sorts in combination with the fact of some health issues that uh, i thought was improving and then recurred on the way down here, making me wonder if I was going to really be able to preach this morning without going into coughing spasms. That in itself sent Ken into other kinds of spasms. Um, in his plan B that he hadn't planned on. <laughs> so I'm thankful that the Lord has answered prayer and, uh, and restored me to a state of being able to, to preach today. God willing, we can get through this. Um, but in addition, there's, you know, over the years I've uh, come to recognize as I get older that this is a leaky bucket. <laughs> and therefore, I have moved to more of a manuscript form, you know, years ago and in, in preaching uh, because I kept forgetting too many things that I didn't want to forget. So I uh, am, am envious of Ken. I, I, all I can remember anymore is that I used to have a memory like that. Um, <laughs> maybe not so good, but. Uh, so I, uh, ordinarily would have a lot of things, uh, written out, but the, the tail end of the week here has been uh, maybe a bit more chaotic than I planned. And so getting all my thoughts organized and, and so forth is not, uh, as, as ship shape as I normally like it to have. But fortunately that puts me in a place where the apostle Paul says is best, Amen. which is weakness. He, Amen. I've just been meditating on that how much he emphasizes that in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Um, Take a note of that as you read those books. Notice how often he emphasizes weakness. And then the astonishing statement he makes in 2nd Corinthians 12 that I I boast in my weaknesses because when I'm weak, then Christ is strong. And so that Christ's power may be evident in me. It's almost as if, if I have this strength that I think of as my own, that I rely on is like a continual prop, then it's like the power of Christ isn't really dwelling in me because I'm not leaning on it. I'm not consciously sensing a need for it. So that's all good in that sense. I pray that Christ's power would be present today. I pray that somehow through the preaching you'll forget about me and uh, hear the word of God coming through the poor instrument and uh, that Christ will preach as I preach that anything that's wrong that I contribute to the matter will be forgotten by you and everything that comes from him will be remembered and sealed to your hearts. Amen. Um, the title that Ken wanted me to address is Purposed Holiness and Revival. 
purposed holiness being the theme of the conference and then connecting that with revival. And so before we get to the text and look at the revival aspect, I do want to cover a couple of definitions. And I know that I'm covering some ground already that speakers have have addressed, and I'm glad for that, and I don't want to belabor the point, but I do want to underscore it. And so let's look at holiness first, uh, just to clarify what is holiness. And this has already been said, but holiness is not the exact same thing as righteousness. It is Righteousness is a subset of holiness. Holiness is broader than righteousness is and than obedience is. So uh, when we, as Christians, talk, we might talk in such a way that makes it sound like we're using the two terms, holiness and righteousness, synonymously. Um, But it's really just that righteousness is an application, an outworking of being holy. But when we say someone uh, that, you know, God's, Uh, speaking to Moses there and the burning bush, take off your shoes for you're standing on holy ground. We don't mean the ground is righteous or the ground is obedient. We mean something different. We mean God has chosen to come dwell there in a special way. And that ground is now sanctified or set apart, uh, sacred to him. When we think about the Old Testament temple and it being holy, we don't mean it's obedient or it's righteous, we mean it's set apart in a distinct, unique way for God. And the Holy of Holies, the the most holy place, is the special place of his presence. And we really lack the vocabulary to even talk about this. Because it's very difficult to talk about an omnipresent God that's everywhere all at once and then talk about him being extra specially in one place over another. But that's about the best we can do. And so we're getting at this idea of, of holiness God is described, of course, as holy, holy, holy. And uh, what does that mean? It, it means, simply put, that God is devoted to God. And that sounds very uh, selfish. But God is devoted to his own glory. Why is it not selfish? Well, for one thing, God can be devoted to no one higher than himself. If God were to be devoted to any creature above himself, he would be an idolater. He would be no better than the person he mocks in Scripture as carving out a block of wood, carving an idol out of a block of wood or stone or silver or gold, and then bowing down to the very thing you just fashioned. God would be doing that if he turned any of us or anything on earth that he's ever made into the ultimate purpose of all things. He would become an idolater. He's not going to do that. And so there is no other option, really, than God to be ultimately devoted to himself. But secondly, when we say things like that, remember that God is triune. We have a Trinitarian God, not a Unitarian God. And so the way that that is worked out in Scripture is that the Father glories in the Son and the Son glories in the Father. And in an inexpressible and mysterious way that is very difficult to get a handle on, the Holy Spirit, it's through the Spirit that this occurs. And so you have these expressions, for instance, in Scripture, where you have the Father saying of the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then you have Jesus saying things on John 8, 29, for instance, He that sent me is with me, and the Father hath not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. 
he's pleased with the Son, I'm doing what pleases him. He is pleased with the Father. In John 17, 1 through 5, Jesus' prayer, we see the same devotion between the Father and Son expressed. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son may also glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. O now, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So he glorifies him. I glorify you. It's this back and forth mutual glorification. So in short... The holiness of God is God's full-blown commitment to his own glory and no other. Specifically, the Father's commitment to glorify his Son and the Son's commitment to glorify the Father, each through the Spirit. And that's the reason for all things. That's the reason we are here. That's the reason you are not dead yet. That's the reason we exist. That's why world history has unfolded the way it is. It is, in a mysterious way, the, the reason for evil in the world. Uh, it is for the glory of God. And to be purposeful about holiness, purposed holiness, is to align yourself with the purpose of the world. The raison d'etre of, of all things, the, the reason for the existence of all things, is the glory of God. And to be purposed about holiness is to get on board with that and to make it your purpose your goal your reason for existence your purpose statement of life to be the glorification of god so make him your portion seek him and his kingdom above everything else it's not that he is first and a list of priorities, and you've got second place, third place, fourth place, and there are ways down from first place. There, there is no second place, third place, and fourth place. There's God. And pursuing holiness and being purposeful about it is to pursue God only, such that anything else you do in life, whether it's get married and have kids, and go to your work and do a good job while you're there, um, Anything that you might watch, anything that you might read, any way that you might spend time, any hobby that you might undertake is to be done for the glory of God. And if you can't justify it under that overall principle, it's an idol. Holiness, pursuing holiness, purposed holiness. So we see scripture passages that bring this to bear. 1 Corinthians 10.31 is a well-known one. Whether therefore ye eat or drink, whatever, soever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17, and whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Colossians 3.23-24, whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He demands nothing less. 
not with the 51% majority of our heart. Right. We're to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Right. We are to pray, first prayer, hallowed be thy name. That's what he put in our mouths to say first. Then thy kingdom come, then thy will be done. Focusing on God and his interests first and foremost. God is a jealous God. There, is, there can be no competition. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You will love one and hate the other. We are not made to be polygamous, either with our marriages on earth in a human capacity, nor with God. Right. God is not to be one of the gals in the harem. Right. That we visit every now and then. But that's the way many people treat God. They treat him as one concubine amongst many in their self-imagined harem. You can only have one God, one spouse. Matthew 13, 44 through 46, the parables, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in the field, with which when a man found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all he had and bought it. The rich young ruler couldn't do it, could he? He went away sadly. He couldn't have both. Jesus wouldn't allow it. Go and sell all you have and come follow me. In Psalm 27, 4, David says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. One thing have I desired. That's that one, that single-mindedness, God alone. Psalm 73, I believe, was quoted yesterday, and one of the messages it was anyway. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And one more, Philippians 3, 7 through 10. You know this one. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for the sake, uh, counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. So these passages show us essentially the holiness of, of God and purposed holiness on the part of his people. What does that have to do with revival? Well, what is revival? The word revive occurs in our English translations in verb form a few times. It's not a common word. It doesn't occur in noun form. But it's kind of like the word trinity, which doesn't occur in the Bible, but describes a reality that is there. And revival is like that. It's a word that describes something that's there. 
and it's a word we've given to it in the English language, to call it that. It can also be called awakening, although some people distinguish an awakening from a revival. Um, some people distinguish a local effusion of the Holy Spirit um, compared to a broad geographical um, revival that hits many places in churches. Different people define it differently, and I'm not attempting to create some arbitrary definition that trumps them all, but this is, this is a definition to incorporate the theme of holiness. Revival is a generous outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon a lethargic church to powerfully restore her to her long-forgotten purpose, which is holiness, or the glorification of God in all things. Again, revival is a generous outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon a lethargic church to powerfully restore her to her long-forgotten purpose, which is holiness. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, revival is what happens. A desert becomes a fertile field. A fountain of living waters opens up into the desert and life begins to emerge where things looked completely dead. Uh, churches are thronged, um, almost sometimes instantly. The empty pews that were empty the last Sunday are now filled up. There's people standing in the entryways, peering through windows, if that can be done in the building you meet in. Um, multiple services are had to be conducted. The minister utterly wears out. Ministers, be careful if you want a revival. Um, because you, you won't be able to physically uh, hold up long under it. Um, ministers are constantly being approached and asked questions about the, their soul. People are concerned about their soul. And what does it mean to be a Christian? And what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And, he, and if he has others with him, which is great, but if he doesn't, it's him. And there's one person after another after another and ministers have been known to sneak out in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. out a back door to go home and get some sleep because they other folks are coming and going and they can never leave and the singing is is powerfully elevated yeah. and it's not weak and there is a a, a power and a, and a volume that's not forced it's it's natural based on the affections of people that is happening and there are conversions like there have not been and there is deep conviction of sin and there's weeping and there's people who are unable to keep it together. I guess uh, I'm not able to keep it together. Uh, We uh, have not experienced this. Unfortunately, you have to read um, historical books to to get any sense of it. And uh, the first revival of the New Covenant is here in Acts 2. And uh, it's our first record of it in the new covenant after Jesus came and after the Holy Spirit was sent down at Pentecost and it is an infallible record of revival and 
the word runs swiftly and is glorified and missionaries are sent out and lost souls are converted. Uh, Peter preached a powerful sermon. Our brother read through that. People were convicted of their sins that didn't just bounce off of them and fail to penetrate to their heart. Uh, They were terrified. When was the last time you ever saw anybody terrified in church because of a sermon? They wanted to know what they must do to be saved. 3,000 were saved in a day. If you see that, you know the Holy Spirit has come down. That just doesn't happen. In times of revival, the men said more, more, more happened in six months than happened in the previous 25 years. Yes. And then this growing body of converts spends their time and their energy enjoying and glorifying God in the way he's prescribed. And that is what we see here in these verses. There's devotion to the word. There's fellowship. There's breaking of the bread and the Lord's Supper. There's prayer. There's godly fear. There's demonstrations of divine power. There's radical generosity. There's unity. There's praising God and thanksgiving. There's more conversions. And so let's consider those things. But before we do, and I will get to the text, I just want to sort of lay a context for why we need this. I'm sure that you already know that we need it. I'm sure that you are are convinced of that. I feel like we are in that uh, time when, you know, uh, let me rephrase that. I'm not saying we're in that time. I'm not saying this prophecy is of our day. But when you read Luke 21, which is in general about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and you read of a what becomes sort of like, well, this is kind of the way nations fall apart. Nation against nation, wars, disturbances. And then there's this language, this cosmic upheaval language of the roaring of the waves and the signs in the heavens and people with fearful expectation and trembling over the things that are about to come upon the world. That is the sense that people have today, is it not? You've, you've noticed the news. Uh, we have mass shootings. We have our children are being shot up. We have 65 million plus killed in the womb. And it's not stopping. And half of them are by the pill at home in, in the toilet. <coughs> That's probably a gross underestimate. California and New York don't even keep records and haven't for years. That's probably the two biggest numbers there of states. There's rampant suicide. Suicide is through the roof. Demon possession is rapidly on the rise. Fentanyl is killing thousands upon thousands of people. Marijuana, much celebrated, is sending people to the emergency rooms in psychotic episodes and droves. Gangs proliferating. People fornicating instead of getting married. Those who do get married usually get divorced. Hookups. Swingers. Open relationships, they call them. No one knows how to be a parent anymore. Broken homes. Resentful children. Mouthy, petulant children. Feminist daughters. Aimless sons. 
overwhelm foster care systems. They graduate out of the system, and if they're not adopted, they're wandering around. Probably end up in prison. Overwhelmed prison. The rise of all the vile perversions of homosexuality and pedophilia and transgenderism. Filthy entertainment, filthy movies, filthy music. Filthy language. You can't go into a business anymore, it seems, without just... They don't care. The business people have no sense of those. Save that when the customer's not here. They don't care anymore. Drag queen story hours? Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. Pornography everywhere. Sex trafficking and slavery. We talk about Paul Proud, we abolish slavery. We have it today. It's everywhere. Slaves all over this world and in this country. The sex trafficking... Medical kidnapping, looting of stores in the cities, murderers let out a few days after being arrested and they go right out and murder again. The drug addiction, the overdoses, the cities are becoming wastelands with trash and urine and feces decorating the streets. If a Swiss cheese border, generations of lazy, unemployed grifters. We have an incomprehensible, unpayable debt. It's not going to be paid. There's going to be consequences. We have totalitarian, constantly creeping big government, politicized three-letter agencies that work for some of the population and not others. We have tyranny by a biomedical security state. Disappearances of the Bill of Rights overnight under the freak out under COVID. We've gone completely mad of exorbitant taxes, an education system in shambles, a broken justice system, justice for me but not for thee. We have corrupt elections. We have stoking of racial ticket uh, tensions, cancel culture, a limp-wristed military, a country on the edge of civil war, Possibly with China. And then religion. False religion abounds. False religion is growing. False churches proliferate. False teachers are everywhere. But the true churches that are left, most are prayerless. Quarreling over minor questions of practice. Nitpicking. Powerless preaching. I'm not excluding myself from this. I want something more than doctrinally precise right. correct sermons yes. that maybe maybe I wrote them well okay. but where's the power right. and that's America folks it's over it is over and so when I think about revival it's not um it's not any longer with a expectation that revival will save America. Revival came to the, Jew, the Jewish nation there in Acts 2. And 40 years later, approximately, they were done. Right. But they were saved. Yes. They who were ordained to be saved were saved. And that's 
what I'm looking for. That's what I'm hoping for. That's why I've been praying for revival, I guess, probably around 20 years or so. I mean, I don't mean that I get on my face every day. I wish I could say that, but I can't. But I just mean the burden started there. And it's grown, but this this is not going to be fixed by the next presidential election. Right. First of all, the guy you may is not going to be elected. And even if he was, he cannot fix this. This is not fixable by anybody but God. And God doesn't just fix nations. And we can't call on God for revival so he can bring back baseball and apple pie America have it like we had it and so we can go back to our comfort and our ease and our lukewarm churches so we need the the power of God not to save America politically but to survive as churches and to thrive and when they had revival poured out on them in Acts 2 it was not so that they could escape persecution right they didn't they had a martyr coming within a few months yeah. or weeks i don't know but they did thrive yeah. so finally x2 x2 um sorry i'm getting mine my disheveled manuscript all messed up here. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. One of the key aspects of revival is a devotion to the word of God. Their doctrine was their teaching. What did they teach? They would have taught what Christ taught them. The Spirit was promised, specifically with that in mind, he will bring to your remembrance all that I taught you. And so they taught what Christ had taught them, and they remembered it because the Holy Spirit brought it back to their remembrance in a supernatural way. And so the people steadfastly were devoted to that. They were loyal to the Bible. They were Bible people. They wanted to know what God said. And the words there signify earnestness and diligence. They continued steadfastly. But when revival comes, there is a renewed love for the word of God amongst his people. It becomes their new favorite book again. They don't want to hear philosophy. They don't want to hear politics. They don't want to hear funny stories. They want the word of God. They're not satisfied with 15-minute homilies. And the preaching is, as I said, not just doctrinally sound and well-organized and well-worded. It comes with power. It's a power that the preacher cannot produce. I can't mimic it even. 
I can't, it doesn't have to do with my volume or my inflection of my voice. It has to do with something I can't produce. Only the Spirit can bring that. And people don't just politely listen to the sermon. They're gripped by it. As I said, people pack out churches. They don't want to leave anymore. They keep asking for more sermons. A pastor finishes his sermon and they ask for more. And then he gets up and he's like, okay, well, I guess I have to do an extemporaneous sermon. So he tries and, and is marvelously helped in that. And then they want another one. And we've not seen anything like this, have we? I haven't seen anything like this. I don't know of anybody in our generation who's seen anything like this. And maybe there are some examples here, some local visitations here and there, and I don't know about them. That's, I rejoice if there is. I just don't know of them. They continue steadfastly in fellowship. The words koinonia means partnership or togetherness. They loved one another, and we would expect that when the Spirit's poured out, think of all the spirit, fruit of the Spirit, and the first one is love. So if the Spirit comes down, love is going to be evident, and it's going to abound in ways that you've not seen it right. abound. And they loved one another. They enjoyed one another. They didn't do, as most churches do today, immediately zip out of there, out of the you know, the door the minute the service is over as though they really don't like each other. And there isn't that kind of fellowship in many, many places today. The bond is weak and people have other things they want to get to. People are in and out. They don't seem to really be a want to be around for any lengthy period of time. The Lord's day is not a day. It's just an hour back to the world. There was the breaking of bread, and there, this comes up twice in the passage. I think the first one has to do with communion and the Lord's Supper. I think the second one has to do with meals and hospitality. I don't think he's repeating himself. Uh, in the breaking of bread, uh, you have that in clear references elsewhere to um, the Lord's Supper. And they were taking it very often, and... Uh, in the Lord, in, in revival times, when you read the accounts of revivals, the Lord's Supper was a very sweet time. And it was, Christ was very visibly um, portrayed to them in a very sweet fashion as the elements were given and as there was preaching upon the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It wasn't an empty ritual. People remember Christ's sufferings and death with a tenderness that the times before didn't seem to compare to. And in prayers, he says, they prayed together. They practiced what Paul exhorted in Colossians 4.2 when he said, continue in prayer or be devoted to prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. So in times of revival, the canceled prayer meeting is restarted. Yes. Prayer meetings have dwindled down to a few, but then they're thronged. And even teenagers have been known in revival times to start prayer meetings. And little groups come up here and there in different homes around town. People who didn't ever pray before suddenly start opening their mouths and praying. Prayers are fervent where they were dry and lifeless before. People who struggle to know what to say in prayer suddenly find themselves marvelously helped to form their thoughts and their words. Those who struggle with just the vain, repetitious way of 
saying prayers and then end up not doing it at all because they don't want to do mantras end up being helped over that. Instead of prayer meetings being absorbed with health concerns, people pray about the great matters of the kingdom of God. But look at the churches today, generally speaking, and I, it's easy just to say that and not even know what I'm talking about. You know, like, how many churches have you been to? Well, I participate on a united prayer call through Sermon Audio. It's daily, except for Sunday. Um, and this is the report all across the spectrum of the anywhere from 60 to 80 participants that come on. It's a common refrain. There either is no prayer meeting period or there's just a tiny handful of people that go to it and even them might just be focused on health concerns. Yeah. And it's just utterly disappeared. And this is from all over the America. It's in Canada. It's in New Zealand. It's in Australia. It's in Germany. It's in South Africa. It's everywhere these folks are coming from. Holland. Verse 43, fear came upon every soul. Fear. That just doesn't characterize our gatherings usually. It's like when Jesus came up to the funeral bier of the the son of the widow of Nain. He died and Jesus comes up and does this ultimate no-no. He goes up and just touches the the man. You don't touch unclean things. You You stay away and they're all shocked. They stop and he rises and great fear came upon them all. And they glorify God, saying that a great prophet has risen among us, that God has visited his people. And that's what happened here in Acts 2. That kind of fear, because that Christ was present through his spirit in his church, and that kind of fear came then. And yet we don't have that, which is why we would pray for revival. We need that fear and trembling. We quit taking God lightly. We quit acting like he's just my buddy and my pal. Yeah. He's holy, holy, holy. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. So they had miraculous healings, exorcisms, resurrections. There was the judgment on Ananias and Sapphira that put everyone in fear. Yep. Those can be good things. It can be a good thing when God deals with a heavy hand with somebody and makes an example of them. And the result to the rest is beneficial. You know, some even believers in 1 Corinthians 11 were dealt with severely because they were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and some were sick and some were dead. The reason I say believers is because it says they slept. That's usually a term used for the death of believers. And then he goes on to talk about discipline. If you don't be disciplined by the Lord, that's how God deals with sons, discipline. So it, whether Ananias and Sapphira were, no, that's a debatable matter. But certainly God even coming in judgment in power that way brings about good results. When you read of revivals in history, one of the distinguishing features is power. Power in preaching, power for conversions, power for godliness, and so much being accomplished in such a short time. Today, I am speaking of myself. We have you know, expositional sermons. They're, they're doctrinally sound, perhaps. They are precise. 
and there's an abundance of them. You can hear them all over the internet. We live in a day when there's more available to be heard than ever before. You could be some remote place and uh, nothing but terrible churches to pick from, and you could still go online and find, you know, good, doctrinally precise, sound sermons, but where's the power? Where's the changed lives? I'm not saying there aren't any. Thank God there are. But we don't see today, and we haven't for quite some time, what we're seeing here in Acts 2. The power of the gospel and influence on this culture. Where's the power of the gospel and the influence on this culture? What you see, uh, the things that I just read earlier, you see the power of the devil. And he's got power, doesn't he? Everything I just said is is amazingly destructive and suicidal. And he's getting the job done. And he's getting it done because God has said, essentially, to our country, you don't want me to rule over you? Here's your other option. You, you have him then. See how you like it. If the Christians are the salt of the earth and salt has a power to preserve and to improve the flavor of something, where is the evidence that there is much of it? Yeah in this culture how could this culture rot like this if there's either very many christians at all or anything more than just a lukewarm church that's barely hanging on and this candlestick is about to be removed we need power they had power we need power generosity verses 34 to 45 radical generosity And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. So they were marvelously delivered from selfishness and stinginess. This wasn't communism. It wasn't government-imposed equality of outcome. It wasn't the confiscation of private property where the government owns everything and then Everybody's equally poor is essentially the result of that. These people voluntarily shared what they had with others. Want to borrow my tools? Sure. Borrow my tools. Feel free. Need to haul stuff with my donkey and my cart or today our truck? Go right ahead. You need some flour to break bread? I've got some flour. Because the spirit had been poured on me, out on them, that the spirit of mine was subdued. But they sold things in order to get money, in order to share with those they uh, that were in need. They didn't say, "Why don't you go, you know, find some government program and go mooch off that?" They stepped up to alleviate the problem. If they didn't have disposable income or extra money to be able to share with those in need, they sold stuff to get the income to share with those in need. Unthinkable. Who ever heard of such a thing? I assume that they didn't sell the home they were living in and become homeless and beggars, you know, like the Catholic monks thought that that was virtuous, you know, vow of poverty, and then you go and beg people. And there's plenty in the New Testament that indicates we're not supposed to burden other people. We're, we're supposed to go work with our hands and have enough to share with those in need. Amen. We're not supposed to turn ourselves into beggars that then burden other people. Right. So I assume when they sold their homes, it wasn't their own home out from underneath themselves, but probably an extra home that they had. 
Maybe they sold one home and downscaled to another, and with the extra they, they gave it. But it's amazing. You know, it wasn't thinking of our day, you know, well, I'm going to take that money and put it in the stock market and grow that. And uh, they gave it away. In Acts 4, 32 through 37, we have a similar amazing description of this radical generosity. The multitude of them that were believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who was by the apostles, was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having laid whole, uh, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's amazing. And that happens in revival. If you think about this for a minute, you know, land is like this thing, you know, it's it's oftentimes generationally passed down and there's this sense of longevity and honoring the family name and keeping up with the land and those sorts of things. How much more in Israel right. where it's like the holy land, you know, you they're still in that the old covenant era where you can still look at this justifiably. No, that's of the tribe of Simeon. That's of the tribe of Judah. That's of the whatever. And selling land was even, I would suppose, a bigger deal than it would be for us today just because great-grandpa had it. And they sold tracts of land and gave them away. But maybe they believed Jesus. That what I'm, Number one, what am I hanging on to it for it anyway? Didn't Jesus say this entire land was going to be destroyed anyway? Maybe I should sell it now while I can sell it and use it for something. Well, look at America. So, want to just hang on to our money for, for what? Until they confiscate it? Why not give it away before they confiscate it? Unity, verse 46. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. So unity, they continue with one accord, singleness of heart. They're purposed in holiness. All this passage shows people purposed in holiness. God is their portion. He is their all. That's what they live for. And they're focusing on honoring him. And when you bring a group of sinners together, even redeemed sinners, and you gather them together in one place and they spend any amount of time together, there's going to be problems because they're not clones and we have this sinful nature that's a problem and it continues to be a problem and so they're going to start quarreling and have division and strife unless you can get that people focused on one common thing and then all these diversities that people have and all their particularities and personality issues and and all of that don't sink the entire thing that if they can be of one mind and have singleness of heart, all on the same page on the main thing, 
which is glorifying God. They can have a wonderful, blessed unity. If they have that kind of patience, of course, when the Holy Spirit comes down, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, or long-suffering. And allowing for liberty of conscience, as in, first, uh, as in uh, Romans 14, in conscience matters, where the principle is shared, but the application is different. There can be a blessed unity in the church. But when Christians start to lose their focus on this one thing of the glory of God, purposed holiness and living for him and his honor and glory and kingdom, and they start to build their own kingdom, and they start to assert self as the great end for which all things were created, when they forget that Christ is their righteousness and they start hunting around looking for a righteousness of their own, then they start to quarrel with each other and looking for ways to divide become people who can't handle any differences they the kind of person that you know meets another christian and the first thing they're looking to do is carry out an inquisition to discover what in what manner do you differ from me i suspect you're not a clone to me and i'm going to find out where and then when i find out the area or multiple areas of difference i'm going to camp on it and make as much of it as i can but when God sends revival, there's a sweet and blessed spirit of unity. There's a singleness of heart. Right. And continuing with one accord and love that abounds for one another. They continued daily with one accord in the temple. So they were not Sunday-only Christians. This carried on through the week for them, day by day. They were everyday Christians. I'm not saying they didn't. Of course, the Lord's Day was special to them. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there was not this idea of this sort of, you know, carnality throughout the week. Or, yeah, I don't do anything with respect to the kingdom of God and the people of God throughout the week. That's just Sunday. They didn't have that mindset. They couldn't apparently get enough. This was their life. This was not like a piece of pie and they divided it up seven ways and one of them got you know um, the Lord's Day was one of those pieces Um, that's not the way they looked at it and breaking bread from house to house to eat their meat with gladness I think this is where it's talking about hospitality hospitality is huge there's a wonderful ministry in hospitality there's a power in hospitality opening up homes and that would have to mean that they were delivered from the better homes and gardens view of what my house must be to let someone else in it. This doesn't have to be that. It uh, doesn't have to be perfect. And there's a pride with that. And in revival, there's a humility that comes that mortifies that pride. And so if my house isn't quite as squeaky clean as I would like to be, to be for guests, Oh, well, it's better that I have guests than I have that squeaky clean house. This is kind of a lost art in our society. We're so separated and, you know, uh, alone and independent and individual and scattered. But people open up their homes. All the things that keep them, kept them from doing so before are not so important anymore. And they had joy. They ate their meals together with gladness. 
Verse 47, praising God. They delighted in God. They acknowledged him as the generous giver of every good and perfect gift from above. They recognized that. They weren't uh, grumbling was not the word you would come up with to, to describe them. Yeah, a bunch of grumblers. They were praising God. They were thankful. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. They had favor with all the people, which is interesting. The, the people of Jerusalem are simultaneously said to not dare associate with them and yet hold them in high esteem. You don't necessarily win everybody. Not everybody necessarily is going to be converted and come to Christ. But there is this thing of having a good reputation with outsiders, something that an elder must have, but that the church had it. And they didn't want to commit to that group, but they recognized that group was sincere, serious, sober-minded. Um, they were living right. They lived in a way that could be approved by anybody. As far They were honest. They were not liars. They paid their bills. They, they, they had the favor of the people around them. They, you know, the, this is a group of people that love their neighbor as themselves, and they... They were behaving and living responsibly and it made a positive impression upon even those who would not dare join them. So we finally come to this last phrase of the text and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Daily. One cannot read that and think that we're anywhere close to anything like revival. We're glad if we get a conversion once every five years. It's not to de-emphasize the joy in those. It's just to say that's not this. This is what happens when the Spirit is poured out. He marvelously works in through the church and through the community, and he pierces people in their hearts, convicting the world of judgment and righteousness and piercing their heart to cause them to be terrified and to call out and say what must I do to be saved and the church isn't adding to their number because they came up with some really good program that finally solved the puzzle of their generation they're not getting people in the doors because they finally um, figured out the right music to sing or because they got a good nursery going and therefore the you know the people would come finally it, it wasn't about those things it was about people hungered for God they were desperate for God they were convinced that they were hopeless condemned without a savior and they needed one and there was one and there were some people who knew about this savior and that's what they needed and so a lot of the things that we've been doing in the last Wow, certainly 50 years. Uh, maybe that's too long of a span, but all this church growth stuff, all this marketing, all this gimmickry to try to get people in the church is really a reflection of the lack of power, right. the lack of Holy Spirit. Yeah. But the Spirit is not with us to bless and to convert and to convict. And so then we start resorting to these other things of the flesh. And decide that we'll do what needs to be done and help God along. So these were a people 
and the church in Jerusalem who were purposeful about holiness. God was there all. He was the pearl of great price. You can see it in the way they lived, the way they conducted themselves, the way they interacted with each other, the way they met daily. And this is the great need of the hour. And we are very likely to face persecution. We are not used to living under a government that is turned against us. But it's not unusual. The government of Myanmar is against its people. The government of China is against its own people. The government of Iran is against its own people. The government of Venezuela is against its own people. The people are oppressed by their own governments. It's, it happens all over the history of the world. It happens all over the world today. And we in America are not used to this. We are not accustomed to think we have a Bill of Rights. Well, guess what? It can be set aside like that. And nothing's done about it. And we're going to have to get used to this. I, and when I say that, I just mean that we, we can't be shocked by this. And we need to be prepared for it. And we need the Holy Spirit empowerment yes. for that, or we're not going to survive. Yes. <coughs> we will be like the rocky ground soil yeah. that was you know, sprung up and with joy as long as times were good. But when the sun, the scorching heat of persecution comes, withers away. Yeah. And I expect we'll see a lot of that. I expect we'll see more and more people empty out of churches as it becomes more and more hostile. Of course, there'll be the state-approved churches. They'll be full, but um, we're going to need power, and that's why you see in Acts 4, they, they knelt down for prayer, and they prayed for what? Not escape from persecution. Boldness. And the place was shaken, and they were given it. And that way, Stephen could be martyred and persevere and uh, Peter and his companions could be whipped and flogged in the synagogues and then go out rejoicing and not cower in fear and not back down and not change a thing and say we must obey God not men that's the kind of power we'll need let's pray Father bless your own word we plead with you with Uh, the hands of a beggar we have nothing to trade with we um, plead for your um, generous bestowal of your Holy Spirit Uh, your people are in need of you in Jesus name Amen. Amen